Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. How's everybody? Wow, that was the, the quickest anyone's ever quieted down. You guys must be excited. Or maybe, or maybe everyone's afraid. I don't know. Welcome to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. My name's Matt Kressel. I'm the co-host here with Ellen Datlow. It's uh, this Fantastic Fiction reading series. Thanks, guys. It's held on the third Wednesday of every month. We've been doing this for over a decade. Um, and it's, and it's a whole lot of fun. So uh, the, the reading series is always free. And all we ask is that you buy a drink because the, the KGB bar uh, never charges a cover charge. Even if you want a soft drink, please go up, buy a drink, tip your bartenders. They're working real hard to keep you guys hydrated. So thank you. <laughs> also want to mention that in the back, uh, we have Word Bookstore selling books from both authors. We have... Uh, David Edison's Waking Engine for sale, and also several of Jeff Ford's collections. So after the, the first reading, David's gonna read first. After the first reading, go ahead, buy a book, bring it up, uh, and the authors will sign copies for you. And if you brought your own books to sign, great, uh, bring them up as well. Um, just a brief announcement about the, uh, the next couple of months at Fantastic Fiction. August 19th, next month, N.K. Jemison and A.C. Wise. Woo! September 16th, Lawrence C. Connolly and Thomas F. Monteleone. October 21st, Fran Wilde and Nathan Ballingrud. November 18th, Robert Levy and Kathy Koja. December 16th, C.S.E. Clooney, also known as Claire Cooney, and Elizabeth Hand. January 20th, Alana Meyer and Delia Sherman. And uh, a lot of other uh, amazing authors coming up in 2016, so we hope you'll uh, attend those. Um, our first reader tonight is David Edison. Uh, his decade-long series of journalistic gigs was eaten by the internet. His first novel, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? Does that mean they vanished from, from the face of the planet? What's yes, that? that's exactly what it means. Okay, all right. So don't Google them because they won't show up. His first novel, The Waking Engine, was published by Tor in 2014, and earned debut of the month from the Library Journal. His next novel, The Noonday Plague, which I am told he's reading from tonight, will be published in 2016. He makes his home in San Francisco, but his heart beats East Village blood. David Ayers. Good on volume? Yes? All right. 
in that case. Uh, I'm going to be reading from uh, the middle of my second book, uh, The Noonday Plague. It's uh, a little preamble. Um, our villainess, uh, who is a cyborg fairy queen, whose components are powered by the stolen blood of our protagonist, Cooper, uh, is reclaiming her homeworld uh, and sets her minion to uh, undo Cooper with a certain drug. And that's where we begin um, with a, an epigraph not written by Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> As opium shaped Hong Kong, so did methamphetamine shape Sierra Vida. What happens when you bring crystal to a crystal singer's world? Light and illusion are the bread and butter of the summer court. They never stood a chance against the rock of false life. First, the Seelie Fae built that fabled city, and then they lost it to history. The Rock of False Life, Substance Abuse and the Fall of the Seelie Fae, Hunter S. Thompson. Lalawee watched life return to the Court of Scars. The moment she'd finished writing lyrics to the Sparning song, her mother's long winter had ended. Now the crocus and the daffodil pushed their green spears through the dust, followed by the bloodroot and yellow celandine. Of course, the cherry blossoms would return a little late this year once her sister, Almondine, learned to stop screaming. Still, to see the forest world bloom again was a balm for its queen's heart, and Lalawi whispered the secret benedictions to every species she passed. Ope your golden eye, wee daffodil, she giggled in delight and raised her hands to meet the rising sun. The timing of the star remained clockwork perfect, her burning muse and first inspiration. The men here's north of the court still traced the path of Pritomes Prime across the sky of Urusala, but soon Potato Vine would wrap itself around the runes and coil about the hold stones like copper wire around a transistor. Life would drench the oldest clock Lalawi had ever known. Life would rack and wrap and pull with all the might of nature and yet that clock would not lose an iota of accuracy. Something above her head caught the light of the rising sun, something cradled and green and newly revealed. Lalawi let loose a gasp of delight that would have shocked anyone who knew her with its sincerity. She clapped her hands and called for her second favorite slave. Tam gave no answer, so Lalawi asked the crocus and the daffodil to amplify her call. So too the bloodroot and celandine till half the hemisphere rang with the summons of its queen. From the other side of the court, waist deep in grave dirt, Tam scrabbled towards his mistress. Young Tam Lin, Tom Elaine, Tim Line, Tamarindo Kemigusto, come here. As Tam approached, he, he slowed from a manic gamble to a wary trot, which dropped to a sly slink. He knew too well the tree beneath, his, beneath which his mistress stood. He had, a, he had a history with the fruit it bore, and it was not a pleasant one. The cicatrix had introduced him to its power, and it had almost consumed him. Some days he wished it, he wished it had. Closer, Tam. Lalawi reached up and grabbed the branch over her head. From within a furl of leaves, she plucked a fruit. The branch resisted for one, two, three inches and then released its gift, a translucent white nut, no, a crystal, milky white and faceted, the size of her thumb. Look what's come alive at last, Tam. 
Tam stepped back and forth, nervous at the sight of the legendary fruit. Aha! You remember the wicked fruit of Sierra Bida. Long did mother strive to grow the sealy crop, but it took the death of the unsealy champion to coax the tree to bud. Lalui admired the gem as it glittered in the palm of her hand, immune to its poison. Thank you again, mother, for dying. I know, ma'am. Twas I who won my way to the center of that terrible place and stole the fruit for her grace. With her free hand, Lalui slapped Tam hard across the cheek. I'm her grace now, Tam Lin. Mother does not deserve your retroactive respect. Of course, your grace. My thousand apologies, your grace. Tam's eyes never left the rock. Better. Of course, we appreciate your effort on behalf of our court. We've heard the song and know well your travails among our false cousins. She screwed her face to one side, thoughts taking a tangent. I think we'll grasp, we'll graft a sample to Almondine and see what happens. She turned her sister into a tree. <laughs> Tam cleared his throat, eyes darting from his mistress's face to the drug she held in her hand. For you, young Tam Lin, I have a very special task indeed. Lalui held the crystal fruit over their heads just out of Tam's reach. Her heels and native height gave her the advantage. Would you like to hold it, I wonder? I would, yes, Tam licked his lips. Very much, ma'am. Your grace, your thousand graces. I think, Lalawe spoke in a whisper and dipped her wrist up and down, teasing Tam with the narcotic he'd tasted at her mother's command. That you've earned the right to call me ma'am, don't you? I do, your grace. I do, ma'am. Yes. She smiled at the addict her family had made. Once upon a time, her kind had done great things. Tam Lin's chapped lips and shaky hands proved to Lalui that her greatness could still bear fruit. Would I be terribly remiss, Tam Lin, if I presupposed that you'd like to see your friend Cooper? Tam blinked but didn't disagree. No, ma'am, you would not. It would be a well-earned respite, wouldn't it, to spend a few nights tangled in the sheets, high and horny with the man who returns your affection. Peas Blossom hacked a a chuckle from the eaves, but Lalui silenced him with a thought. Her network of vivisistors was falling into line. She observed as the old fairy obeyed her unspoken command. The truant members of her court would soon beg for her mercy. Wouldn't that be a treat, Tamlin? Let them see her mercy. It would, ma'am. Let them see the end of Tamerlane, her favorite and imagine the fate reserved for her displeasure. There will be music playing across the city I've seen to that. A jolly feint that would recoup its cost easily when she, when she played that particular hand. Tomorrow may see the city unspoken, immolated by its own sons. At the least I can do is sing my husband there to his end. I'd like it very much, Tam, if you'd see Cooper safely out of the city before it succumbs to the remembered furnaces that crowd its skies. Ma'am, Tam tried to think clearly. She saw the effort upon his face. Cooper won't abandon the city. I know he won't, not for me. This is your chance, Tam, to save something from a doomed city. You couldn't save Sierra Bida, could you? Tam shook his head. He could not save Prince Cal, who wouldn't leave the throne bed, who stared into the light as it burned him alive. First the bones, then the rest. 
photoneads circled the smoke Cal's body made, insensate with idiot ecstasy as their royal family burned. And what lives there now in Sierra Vida? Nothing, a terror of light, electricity, and emptiness, haunted eyes and skulls. Still, his hand itched for what the Sealy botanists had called the rock of false life. He shook for it. Photoneads, maybe, if radiation can be said to live. Thus fell the last Sealy stronghold. Would you see Cooper fall to the same cruel light that took your calumnine? You could save this one. But, but Cal fell because of the rock, not because, don't you trust your queen, Tamlin? Of course, your ma'am. That pleases me to hear. The circumstances are different, yes, but the end game is the same. Watch your lover burn or make the attempt to save him. If you don't at least try, will you ever forgive yourself? Use the rock, Tam. Redeem yourself and your passions in one brave act. The rock of false life would not burn while held by hands that belonged to the airy dark. The unseely could never share this particular weakness with their summer kin. When Lalloway dropped the rock into Tam's hand, however, it began to smoke. Tam shook as he breathed it in. And when he turned and began to run, he hardly noticed the worlds dilating past him, nor felt his mistress clench and heave him back to the doomed city. We skip ahead to the city. Cooper materialized at the foot of Giant's Rib Bridge, which looked more crowded than the park. Tam stood in front of him, a half-smile on his face, as if he'd been waiting for Cooper to arrive at that precise moment. Before Cooper could so much as raise an eyebrow, Tam shook his, took his hand. Tam's eyes were wild, his face sweaty. Cooper, I've missed you. Tam, Cooper had just seen Nini Leibowitz murdered for her own protection. What? Tam pulled him towards the bridge. We're making art, living art, dying art, whatever. You've got to come look, it's amazing. His eyes bulged out of his head, manic and hypertensive, with pupils that would look too large on an anime face, let alone among Tam's refined features. What are you on? Are you on something? I'm on a bridge, Cooper. <laughs> Tam didn't get it. His thoughts were elsewhere, if they were anywhere at all. He dropped from a squat onto his backside, swinging his bare feet, curling and uncurling his toes in the warmth of the sunshine sun's shine. I'm on a bridge with my freedom and I'm creating again in Cooper. I haven't felt like this in a thousand years or more. I can see everything and it's all inside me. Did you take any drugs? Tam reached down, holding out his arms in the frozen pose that indicated he wanted Cooper to reach up in equal measure. Cooper raised his hands and Tam slipped off the bridge, sliding into Cooper's arms with an approving grunt. Cooper wrapped his arms around Tam's slim waist, their smiles pressed together. I didn't take any drugs, Cooper, Tam whispered, then brushed his lips against Cooper's. Cooper kissed him back, savoring the, the taste of sweat on Tam's lips, the simple heat of two bodies pressing against each other under the suns. Will you come see what we've made? Tam asked when he broke off the kiss. He licked his lower lip and smiled at the taste of Cooper. 
We're calling it the popular waterfall. Isn't it grand? A curtain of falling bodies dropped from the bridge to the gully beneath. Maybe six bodies abreast, a crowd funneled onto the bridge where they waited to throw themselves into the daylight. The participants, were they suicides, really, if they did not die? Gossip to each other with manic smiles and saucer big pupils as the line inched forward. Below, a pile of not quite corpses squirmed in the trough where two eaves joined. The fallen pulled themselves up on either side, clambering up the layered rooftops until they could scramble to the bridge again to fall. It was easier going on one side than the other, as one mansard roof came nearly level with the funnel of street traffic that had joined one end of the bridge. On the other side, like ants, they climbed a human ladder three or four bodies long and pulled themselves up onto the bridge directly. Both groups found their way to stand in line, happily bleeding or holding broken limbs, many with compound fractures or badly dislocated joints, waiting their turn to jump again. Tam grabbed Cooper's face with both hands and searched his face for something. Child of hope, child of madness, child of light, child of void. What ch which child are you? Which child will you bear? Tam's eyes were wild. I'm a grown-ass man, and I'm not equipped to bear children. Look elsewhere for children of prophecy. Cooper did not much like this Tam. His beauty seemed waxy, his smile false, though he did not think Tam knew it. The man continued his rambling. You died at the edge of the world, the slight hand of a goddess wrapped around the meat of your throat, your beard stubble underneath her pretty hand. She could have been a blood-red hurricane, or a wind of knives, or a dragon, but she killed you as a woman, because she's preoccupied with the business of women and men. The first people have all been a little lost, to tell the truth, since our kind came along. Right. We ruined everything with the nuclear family. I've already taken this class, Professor, and I passed it with flying homosexual colors. I'm an American dissident in exile. This is not brand new information. Give me your queer, your feminist, your diverse masses longing to be free from the myth of freedom. Stupid boy. Tam's hand shook again, and, and again Cooper saw him put it anywhere but near the pocket of his waistcoat. You've not seen a fraction of the diversity your kind represents, and the existential crises of the first people has nothing to do with how you structure your societies, but with the fact that your societies exist in the first place. Cooper waved his hand at the smoking city and channeled Oxnard, Lalloy's wife. Oh yes, rich people in bubbles and the, and the streets filled with the dying, quelle diversité. When do we get to see this alleged richness of phenotype, Monsieur le Dieu? Is it hiding under the manse, Terence de Guise, lairing with reformers in Bisto? Is that, is that what's buried beneath Bonsecchi-sai, then? Diversity? That would explain the japonerie, but not the ghosts. Tam looked into the distance, where bodies fell. He'd had millennia of experience with the Fae, who belonged to the Third People and resented it. Who knew what adventures he'd had in their ambitions to be more like the first people? They are aloof by nature, solitary, unique. A gathering of the first people is a prelude to a massacre, the emergence of a pantheon, or the raising of a civilization. They understand how they appear to us, 
but for all their greatness, they are incapable of understanding us. They do not need one another. Tam took Cooper's hand again. We need each other, whatever we say. Chesmerule and Osibo are married, Cooper looked away, naming two first people. They need each other. Alouette is married. Chesmerule busies herself abducting idiots and sheltering wounded animals like you. This was too much, too convenient, and too obvious. What do you want, Tam? Why are you here? What did Lalawi do to you? And what are her people up to in Lesser Tentacle Park with the music? Tam's expression brightened. The ex-Marquesa is a kind queen, not at all like her mother. From his vest pocket, he withdrew a pipe of faceted glass. It began to smoke immediately in the sunlight. She gave me medicine, you see. It cures the sfarning, the madness. Try it. The smoke smelled acrid, and Cooper had had enough foreign substances forced into his bloodstream today. He'd also seen fevered-looking men and women holding glass pipes before he was a New Yorker, after all, <laughs> and had no inclination whatsoever to follow that ruinous path. Absolutely not. No, no, no. Okay. Tam turned away and caught the arm of the first handsome man he saw. He held up his pipe and, and let the light set it ablaze. Tam inhaled a huge lungful of the smoke and kissed the stranger, exhaling it into the man's lips. Are you kidding me? Cooper turned. Cooper pulled Tam, to, Tam away. The other man stumbled, eyes like saucers. You miss me so much as long as I do your drugs. Fuck you. Tam blinked away the harsh light. His expression turned from manic to terrified in an instant. Cooper, please, help me. I need your help. I don't remember who I was. Step one, put down the magic crack pipe. <laughs> Tam shook his head. No, it's her. Please, you are a spirit worker. If you taste the poison, you can draw it out of me. I can. Cooper doubted Tam. He, he made a kind of sense, but he also had the air of trickery about him. I don't think I can do that. Tam took a huge drag from the pipe and exhaled a thick cloud toward the white hot sun that hung above the dome. A face swam toward him through the smoke, then darted away again. Is that why the photo naiads are here? Did you summon fairy spirits with your magic crack? Tam shrugged. I don't know. They definitely enjoy the rock of false life. The rock of false life, Cooper pointed at the pipe. Is that what you're smoking? It has a name. It has many. Tam took another deep drag from the self-burning pipe. Well, it smells like burning plastic, which reminds me of good old-fashioned methamphetamine. <laughs> Cooper shook his head. You'll excuse me if I don't join you. Tam pulled Cooper's chin toward his own and exhaled the last of the smoke into Cooper's mouth. He held on with both hands and looked Cooper in the eyes as they dilated, suddenly huge. But as Tam watched Cooper gasp, those yellow-brown irises contracted back to baseline and beyond, becoming mere pinpricks, as was meat considering the number of suns in the day-cursed sky. Cooper felt more sober than he had since before his day in the park. That's it? You pimp yourself out over half a cup of decaf? Tam recoiled. 
Cooper could hear his terrible, his terrified thinking. That's not possible. Cooper just inhaled a massive quantity of smoke, which would have dumped enough of the drug into his blood. Airy Dark, no. Tam's terror tripled. Your blood. Cooper didn't understand much, but he knew that only one thing about his blood could matter to Tam, the fact that it pumped through Lalloway Tew's vivisister. He began to suspect what Tam was thinking. This, Cooper said, a nasty smile spreading across his lips. This I want to see for myself. He took Tam's hand, hand and left the world behind. Dave, we're going to take a, t a 10 or 15 minute break. Uh, like I said before, please uh, get a, a books in the back. You can buy them, get them signed, buy a drink, and we'll, we'll be back in about 10 or 15 with Jeff Ford. So see you in a couple. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.